2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Wrights and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening, As Together we continue to navigate life during quarantine. Smith Farm at the Atlanta History Center has repurposed its garden from a museum showcase to a supplier of fresh produce, We'll hear about their partnership with Concrete Jungle to reduce the food insecurity faced by many Atlantans now. Shakespeare wrote, If music be the food of love, play on. The Atlanta opera is nourishing the souls of those in nursing homes and hospitals with singing telegrams. Artistic director Tomer Vulum will tell us more. First, supporting local farmers and eating healthy. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, fresh produce and meat have been more difficult to find in grocery stores. Food distributors and supply chains are working tirelessly to keep up with the increasing demand. Food industry workers remain vigilant to protect themselves and others who shop at these stores. An alternative to shopping indoors is to order online from your local farmer's market. Community Farmers Markets has created a virtual farmers market where shoppers can order local and organically grown produce. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the executive director, Katie Hayes, via Zoom. Here, Katie explains the partnership between community farmers markets and Jamestown the property management company of Pont City Market
3: part of their vision was always to have a farmers market at the location they have markets at other locations of theirs around the country and food is obviously a huge focus of Pont City Market so we've been part of the conversation since the beginning and been very supported by Jamestown and the Jamestown Foundation and it's a great partnership. It's a, it's a unique market um, because it's mostly pedestrian um, and cyclist oriented when it's open in, in the regular season. But we've pivoted to be more online focused right now.
1: And you guys set up right off of the Beltline, kind of like on the,
3: is it the west side of Pont City Market? Normally, yes, we do. Normally we're in the shed right on the Beltline, but now we're on the front lawn on the North Avenue side while we're doing the pickup model. Can you talk a little bit about the mission
1: of Community Farmers Market?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we started um, originally because we saw a need for more efficiently managed farmers markets. We wanted farmers markets to be sustainable in the long term. And at the time they were mostly volunteer run and not super organized and not retaining a ton of information year to year because of being mostly volunteer run. So me and a few other leaders in the local food movement, including Jonathan Tesher and Lauren Carey and Judith Winfrey got together and decided to start community farmers markets um, because we wanted to make sure that farmers markets were around for the long haul and not just a trend. And over the years, our mission has always been focused on creating local food access. So making sure that both community members have access to Farm fresh food, and also making sure that farmers have access to consumers. So we've grown a lot over the last decade. This is actually our 10th season in operation as CFM. And we now have five outdoor markets and our five fresh mortar markets, which we cooperate, um, as well as our crop cycle and now our website online platform. So we're just trying to create different food access points for both the consumer and the farmer.
1: Even though many businesses have shut down due to COVID-19, farmers markets were deemed essential. How have farmers markets changed the way that they interact with their
3: customers? Community farmers markets in general has been very proactive about being a safe place to buy your groceries. So the Grant Park Winter Market was in operation when all of this started. um, And we immediately looked around the country for best practices. We created hand washing stations that are mandatory for entering the market. We have the booths spaced out so that the vendors themselves are not in too close of proximity to each other. And we have lots of other safety protocols in place. For example, our farmers, um, one handles produce, the other person will handle money. So there's not cross contamination. We took a two weeks off as a pause. While we got our online platform up and running and during the peak period of exposure, and we'll have even more safety measures in place, everyone's going to be required to have a mask. You know, all of our employees will have gloves and be following proper, proper safety protocol. Something else that we, we realized from the very beginning that it was important in service industries like ours, people often come to work when they're sick because they're afraid they won't get paid. So we guaranteed that our staff would get paid whether or not they came to work so that people weren't forced to come if they were sick or scared. And so that's been good for morale. Definitely hard uh, to keep up with payroll, but we know that there's, that our staff will not be coming to the markets if they're sick. So lots of safety protocols in place. And then we also built out our online farmers market. So it's Shop CFMATL, and it's basically the largest a la carte local ordering system in Atlanta and you can go on from Wednesdays and Fridays and order whatever you like. So you can pick out radishes from Mayfloor and lettuce from Cosmos and shrimp from Middle Georgia. So you can you can pick out the different items that you like from the farmers that you normally would support. So we have we have pretty much everything on the site um, that you would find at a local farmers market. And we've been we've turned all five of our market locations into pickup only Points. It's definitely been an experiment, a challenging one, aggregating all of that produce and products from so many different farms. And so we've been doing it so that the pickup is on Wednesdays at each site. So we have a site in Oakhurst, Decatur, Ponce, East Atlanta, and Grant Park. And then we'll we'll eventually hopefully move to a model where we have the markets open and the pre-ordering available as well. Again, we just want to create as many food access points as possible. The people have been really appreciative of the of the order and pickup site because it, you know, it's a very low contact um, way of shopping. So people go online, they place their order, and then when they arrive to pick up, they basically just write their name down, put it in the window, and then pop the trunk. And so they don't even have to touch any of us. And of course, we're being very safe when we put the bag in the trunk. You know, when they get home, they can wipe off the bag and pretty much be good to go. That's great for vulnerable populations or just anyone that doesn't feel comfortable being in a space with other people at all. When you guys are doing pickup points,
1: it's not just with Pont City Markets. It's all over the Atlanta area.
3: Yeah. So we have five pickup locations right now. So we have Oakhurst, Decatur, Ponce, East Atlanta, and Grant Park. And then our Grant Park Market is also um, open on Sundays. So we have five pickup locations on Wednesdays, and then the our largest market is open on Sundays.
1: And can customers use EBT or SNAP cards when purchasing produce?
3: Yes, absolutely. We partner with Wholesome Wave Georgia, and we double, well, we match the transactions. So if a customer swipes their EBT card for twenty dollars, we match that with another twenty dollars for fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, And that's been one of our cornerstone programs since day one. It's really valuable. And it's even more so now with the increase of people who are on Snap and applying to be on Snap. Currently, it's not legal to take Snap online or not able. Many uh, merchant services are not able to take Snap online. So what we've done is if you are a Snap customer and you want to order online, you can still do so. You just email one of our staff members. There's instructions on our website um, and they give you a code so that you can pre-order your products online and then we handle the transaction separately. We've created a, a workaround so that we can make sure that we're reaching our Snap customers because often Snap customers are vulnerable populations and we want to make sure that we're creating as many access points for them as well.
1: And speaking of vulnerable um, and despair populations that don't have access to food as easily, uh, Community Farmers Markets is also a partner with MARTA and they have the MARTA Farmers Markets. How are you guys proceeding with that during this time?
3: We are opening up one fresh MARTA market at a time starting in May and we'll have more safety precautions in place. So we'll probably have like tape indicating how people should social distance. We'll have some things that are um, more pre-packaged. We're also looking to partner with food pantries. We haven't finalized anything yet, but we hope to have alongside our Fresh Marner Market with our fresh produce, have some food pantry staples available as well for folks. About a third of our Fresh Marner Market customers are EBT shoppers and So I think it's really important for us during this time to be able to continue to provide our services.
1: I noticed that some MARTA markets and as well as other farmers markets are kind of clustered on the east side of Atlanta. Are you guys exploring avenues to expand to the southwest side or the northwest side of Atlanta?
3: The first corner markets are actually primarily in southwest and west side of Atlanta. And the other, our other open air markets are mostly on the east side Um, But there are many wonderful food access points on the west side and southwest Atlanta. Um, Truly Living Well has a farm stand and market on Friday afternoons. There's a West End market that should be reopening this summer on Saturdays. There's a new farmers market that we've been consulting with, which will be at the Pittsburgh Yards facility, which is currently under construction. That market is scheduled to open up in June or July, depending on the the virus and the construction schedule so there's lots of opportunities to get fresh food on that side of town there's also a luma farm on the belt line um, that they have a farm stand as well and they ha- accept ebt and have a sliding scale pricing um, and patrick city farms has a csa so there's a lot of options for fresh food um, in all parts of atlanta Farmer's markets also offer
1: other products outside of fresh produce, such as coffee, jewelry, skincare items, what have you.
3: Are these offered at the farmer's markets during this time as well? Food items are, but we have cut back on non-essential items, essentially. So our craft vendors, unfortunately, are not vending with us at this time. And then any hot prepared food is not vending. And that's largely because we want to discourage people hanging out. You can still get a coffee, but you can't get a pizza or whatever and and picnic with your friends. Farmers markets are both an essential service and a gathering place. And so it's a complicated world to be navigating because normally in a you know non-COVID world, we would be encouraging community gathering and fostering that sense of community at all of our markets. And right now we're doing sort of the opposite. You know, we're encouraging people not to touch each other, not to hug each other if they haven't seen in a while. So one of our challenges is maintaining being an essential food access point while also maintaining health and safety practices and following recommendations by the CDC. So one of the things that we've done is that our Grant Park Farmers Market is normally located in beautiful Grant Park, but to discourage gathering, we are, we're keeping our market at the Beacon, a complex in Grant Park, but it's a parking lot. So it's not as enticing as, you know, grabbing some food and having a picnic with your friends as it would be normally in Grant Park because the the market's located in a parking lot now. And so those are some of the things that we're doing just to help discourage folks from gathering at a place where they're used to gathering. Farmers markets don't look like they normally do in a, in a non-COVID world. There's not people walking around and sniffing the produce and touching the produce and walking their dogs and hugging friends. It's not that scenario right now. It's you know people in masks picking out their produce, the vendors touching it for them, no dogs, no hugging. <laughs> so it's less romantic than it normally is, I would say. But it's absolutely essential and critical that people have access to fresh food right now. It's definitely a balancing act because you want to provide these
1: things, but you also don't want to encourage them to take those things and then be in a community together around people. You know, it's like, okay, take the food and this is what you need, but then go back to your respective
3: places. You know, it's so it's so hard because it's, you know, one of the things that's wonderful about these community farmers markets that we've built is that people get to see all their neighbors and friends Uh, And it really is a community gathering space in normal times. And so it's sad to not be able to do that, but it's really important that people are following CDC guidelines and being safe.
1: Right. How has uh, COVID-19 affected the way farmers are transporting their goods from the farms to you guys who are handling it and then giving it to the customers?
3: Our farms have always practiced good food safety practices. But, you know, some of the things that have changed is just just a lot more awareness around sort of touch point supply chain, um, that sort of thing. You know, if one of our farmers had posted something on Instagram cracking the sidewalk about how they had gone to a grocery store and seen people touching everything and they're like, you know, when you shop at our farmer's market at our stand, we're the people that have planted the food, we're the people that have harvested the food, and we're the people selling you the food. So like no one else has touched this food except for them. And every step along the way, our farmers are practicing good sanitation practices to keep, you know, themselves and the customers safe. And so I think people are just more aware, but our farmers always practice great food safety practices. Often better than you would find in a conventional food system because it is grown with care and um, tend to be smaller farms, less people working there, and all of our farmers are very conscious about not coming to market or you know being involved at all in the harvesting process if anyone's showing any signs of illness. And we're very lucky that none of um, none of our farms or vendors have reported having been exposed to or have cases of COVID-19. So we're very fortunate in our farming community. That's wonderful.
1: With grocery stores having bare shelves due to an influx of people buying in bulk, how do farmers markets alleviate those disparities?
3: Well, one amazing thing about farmers markets is because we have such a short supply chain, we're not running low on anything. You know, our farmers are growing more, they're harvesting week to week, and so you're always able to get what you need at the local farmers markets. Um, You know, we always have our produce, but also meat and we have wonderful bakeries. And then there's also some, you know, some treats, like we're not, we're not limiting it to just produce and bare bones. You know, there's also um, on our website, one of our vendors is doing like a DIY pizza making kit and there's banner butter and delicious things like that, that, that aren't just, just the basics. So we've got a little bit of everything. And so You know, for the past few weeks, personally, I haven't been to a grocery store at all, uh, and I've just been entirely eating local, and it's been delightful. Asparagus is in season, strawberries are in season, blueberries are coming in season, so it's quite a nice time to be shopping locally, and, you know, I've been able to feed my family for the last month, primarily on local
2: food. Katie Hayes is the Executive Director of Community Farmers Markets. The virtual Farmer's Market is live Wednesday through Friday at shopcfmatl.org. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. The Atlanta Opera is lifting spirits in their favorite way— Members of the Atlanta Opera are recording singing telegrams. General and Artistic Director of the Atlanta Opera, Tomers Vouloun, joins us, along with artist-in-residence, Alvaro Mutate. Tomer, when we last spoke, you were on the front lines with the opera's costume and wardrobe department's. Making Masks for Grady Hospital. Please tell us about this recent initiative. Who had the idea?
0: This is a a series of initiatives that the Atlanta Opera is working on, and it's spearheaded by our community service task force. It's a a company-wide group of 10 employees led by our community engagement director, Jessica Kiger. And basically, the purpose of this task force is to ask ourselves, what can we do as an opera company with the unique skills of the people that work for this opera company, what can we do to serve Atlanta right now? And so the first answer that you alluded to was creating PPEs, creating protective equipment for those who are in need in hospitals, nurses, doctors. The second initiative has to do with spiritual, and mental connection with those who are in need, again. And there are a lot of people who are in need right now when it comes to connection, to being heard, to hear stories, to hear the human voice and music. And so the idea of those singing telegrams take advantage of the amazing skills of people like Alvaro, our pianist, and our singers who are able to record themselves and send it to those who are in need. That's the basic idea. The telegram
2: may be a term unfamiliar to younger people. In fact, the electric telegraph has been around since the late 1800s. Have you had to explain what a singing telegram is to any of your younger staff?
0: Actually, no, because everybody knows what an email is. And a telegram is just an archaic form of email. And if you send it via email, then it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah,
2: so it's a pre-recorded singing greeting. Now, who are the lucky recipients?
0: So there's a, a few groups of constituents that this goes to. It started as an experiment with the nursing home, uh, Lindbrook, which is one of our great collaborating institutions. And we send it to uh, folks in in that home, those who are not able to see their families right now, who are not able to connect with the people that they love. And it was really moving to see Mm. their reaction to those. And then we expanded it to uh, those who are in the front line. Uh, You already mentioned the partnerships we we have with uh, Grady and with Piedmont Hospital. And so we sent it to nurses and doctors in Grady Hospital. And we then send it to uh, some of our board members who are deprived from human contact right now. We can't see their families. Some of our donors, some of our single ticket buyers, some of our patrons. And uh, it's been an amazing way for us at the Atlanta Opera to connect. You know, we are basically like a fish outside of water right now, because our whole existence mm. is about live performance and connecting with people. And right now we are all closed in a different space than a theater, and we are longing for that connection. And that channel provides us with that connection.
2: Do you foresee the possibility of people being able to make requests
0: for the singers? I think that would be amazing uh, if we can scale up to that. And we are talking about that. I don't know how quick, we can do that. I don't know if the resources, resources that we have will allow us to do that, but that certainly is something that came up, and we would love to follow up on it and maintain our connection with the community right now. Alvaro, you are not primarily
2: a singer. You are a vocal coach and a very accomplished pianist. Would you tell us, please, why you chose a piece by composer Manuel de Falla? Thank you.
4: Manuel de Falla's Ritual Fire Dance is a piece that has accompanied me for a number of years. He grew up in Cadiz, in Spain. Manuel de Falla is also from Cadiz. And he's certainly been a staple of the music that I've been exposed to as a listener or as a performer. When the United States became my second home, uh, of course, in the middle of this crisis, I was looking at both sides of the pond and seeing the impacts that this crisis had had, not only in one geographical environment, but also back home in Spain, family and friends, to reconnect with a piece that had given me so much as fires, ritual fire dance seemed the best methods of uh, care and love that I could muster through music.
2: And it's such an impassioned composition, so characteristic of Spanish music, just wonderful. Do other members of the Atlanta Opera select the music themselves, or are you, Tomer and Alvaro, deciding what repertoire they send out?
4: We've gone about it in a number of ways. Some people that we have been recording singing telegrams to, for example, had come to some of our concerts and performances and had seen us perform pieces that had become stables in each one of the singers' repertoire. When that's been the case and there was a specific message to send, we've encouraged the singer to go down that route. When uh, there was less specificity in terms of choice, less of a personal connection between uh, the receiver and the sender. What we've still tried to do is that the piece was special for us. So, for example, I have not been the only one choosing something from back home for one of the singing telegrams. Our South korean uh, bass studio singer, Isaac Kim, has also recorded a Korean art song because uh, he felt that that was special to him and that he could channel his voice through that as well.
0: You know the other wonderful arias recorded are somewhere over the the rainbow by our wonderful mezzo soprano Elizabeth Sarian. So there's a combination of uh, well-known American songbook songs and arias.
2: Tomer, I think back on your presentation of the World War I drama, Silent Night, and your outreach to veterans, more recently the opera's production of Dead Man Walking involved public conversations about the death penalty, and just last month... Before the shutdown, the public conversations the opera held about race during the run of Porgy and Bess, would you talk about why it's important to you that moral conscience and social justice intersect with the musical offerings of the Atlanta opera?
0: I think that the role of art, whether it's uh, theater, books, museums, symphonies, operas is very wide and it provides us emotional connectivity. It uh, allows us to escape. It allows us to um, empathize with someone who's beyond ourselves. There are many kinds of work of arts out in the world, specifically many kinds of operas out in the world. There are stories that uh, have been around for centuries after all opera is four centuries old and there are operas that are more contemporary and there's a difference between the two although at the core of it they're all telling a story about our humanity about what makes us human beings what is universal to those feelings of falling in love being afraid of dying uh wanting to connect with other people but there is a difference between those two kinds of stories the stories that are older and the stories that allow us to connect with social justice, with things that we are thinking about right now. So for example, if we are, we have a season that includes La Boheme, Aida, and Rigoletto, we are connecting to those century old masterpieces that are dealing with all those issues, those important issues of parenthood and love, et cetera. But every season has to include operas that speak directly to us right now. And things that we are thinking about, whether it's social justice, whether it's racism, whether it's sexual orientation, those are issues that were not tackled by 19th century, 18th century composers like Mozart and Verdi. And we are very lucky right now that we live in a day and age where composers are deeply thoughtful and focusing on the things that we think about, that we are occupied with, and that's exactly why we program Dead Men Walking Silent Night next year. It's going to be As One, which is about a transgender, uh, a new opera about Steve Jobs, and so it's, um, it's a great passion of mine to combine the two, and I really believe in that.
2: Well, I congratulate you for doing it so beautifully, and Talking with you just makes me all the more eager for that day when we can return to hearing the Atlanta Opera perform live in a theater. Alvaro Mutate, Tomers Vulun, thank you very much. Thank you, Louis.
0: Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the other side in the Opera House.
2: Tomers Vulun is the General and Artistic Director of the Atlanta Opera. Alvaro Mutate is artist-in-residence. After a short break, we'll hear about turning a museum garden into a supplier of food for those in need. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta.
1: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
2: Food insecurity in Atlanta is nothing new, but the coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated the problem from empty grocery store shelves to the very risk of going out to get food. Two Atlanta organizations are working to mitigate the impacts that COVID-19 and shelter-in-place are having on those in need. Catherine Kennedy, executive director of Concrete Jungle, and Emily Roberts, director of urban agriculture at the atlanta history center are with us via zoom thank you for joining us
5: thanks so much for having us yeah thanks
6: for having us glad to talk to you
2: emily your main focus at the history center is working on the smith farm how does the farm typically function as part of the history center
6: Smith Farm is one aspect of, you know, a very multifaceted organization. Atlanta History Center has historic houses, collections, of course, the museum with all of the exhibits, programs, and community initiatives, um, and of our archives. And I work for the Goizueta Gardens and Living Collections. And of course, as an institution that preserves and collects artifacts that helps tell the story of Atlanta throughout history, this includes um, living collections, so plants and animals. And so we have 33 acres of landscape around the Atlanta History Center's campus in Buckhead. And that includes a variety of cultivated gardens and a preserved woodland area and we have diverse plant collections and our heritage breed animals. And the Smith Farm is just one part of that. So Smith Farm is a um, representation of a working slaveholding farm of the Atlanta area in the 1860s. We have historic buildings that were moved here about 50 years ago for preservation purposes. And the landscape represents that era. We have historic varieties of crops in the fields, an enslaved people's garden, a kitchen garden, and a swept yard that's by the house that's planted with heirloom flowers. And then, of course, uh, we have a bunch of outbuildings to represent what this farm would look like, sort of on a postage stamp. It's not as big as what the Smith Farm was originally. But surrounding all of the outbuildings are naturalistic native plantings, you know, meadows of native grasses and wildflowers. And then we have the family favorite of heritage breed sheep, goats, chickens, and turkeys that also live on the farm. So my job is to curate and manage those living collections on Smith Farm to promote an understanding of what life on a slaveholding farm in the 1860s would look like.
2: Now, despite the fact that Smith Farm is a living representation of how a farm in 1860s Georgia would have appeared, as you described, you are responding to the present regarding the pandemic. What has changed at the farm since shelter-in-place began?
6: You know, I grow for educational purposes. The landscape at the farm is a tool for historic interpretation, and I am not primarily a production farmer. I'm very lucky. I always say I have the best job because I get to be a farmer who doesn't have the pressure of production. But if my job is to grow things to educate people, and there are no people to come and see to educate, then I have the ability to make some changes. And what there is a need for is food. All of the vegetables that I grow on, on Smith Farm are heirloom or pre-heirloom varieties. So they're not necessarily high yield, but I I do produce some food that doesn't always get cooked in our open hearth kitchen. And so I had already, I talked to Catherine last fall about this growing season, maybe having Concrete Jungle help us identify some places where our food could be donated. and then. The beginning of this growing season just happened to coincide with the outbreak of COVID-19, and Concrete Jungle sent out this email about the work that they were doing, how they were responding, and about how food pantry partners were letting them know that their need was increasing and the food that they were getting was declining. I'm sure Catherine will tell you more about that. And I just thought, well, okay, so I don't have a ton, but I have something, and a little bit can contribute to something larger, right? So uh, luckily I already had this relationship with Catherine. And so I was able to just reach out and say, hey, I have a little bit, do you want it? And she said, yes. And so we just have worked it out to where I've been able to take, with three deliveries so far, take 87 pounds of produce from our farm to the grocery delivery service that they have started.
2: Well, that is wonderful stepping back a moment one crop that you replaced in order to make room for more food crops is the cotton that was growing at smith farms would you talk about that
6: so this is still in the plans i it's still just a little bit too early for me to plant the cotton so i i wasn't even i was able to make the decision to not plant cotton before it was time to plant but again You know, with the role of Smith Farm being to, you know, help us understand, in particular understand the horrific nature of enslavement in this area, cotton is a plant that we have grown on Smith Farm because of its intrinsic link to the violence of enslavement in this area. And it helps us tell that story in a specific way. So cotton is something that is important to us to help tell that story, but again, Without the people to see it, I have the ability to make some small adjustments and decided with you know the permission from the people who <laughs> helped me make those decisions to not grow cotton this year and instead use the space to grow things like turnips and okra, which grow very well in this area and they're high producers and can help feed people. And that's something that's good for us too. Cotton is a very intensive plant. It depletes the soil. So it's good, for, it's good for the ground too. It's good for the soil on the farm to take a break from growing cotton.
2: What are you harvesting right now?
6: Right now, it's all greens for the most part, leafy greens and some root vegetables. And luckily, one thing that I grow a lot of at the Atlanta History Center is sweet potatoes. And I had a lot of sweet potatoes that I harvested in the fall that I had kept in storage safely. So we had some storage sweet potatoes that I was able to deliver as well. And that was 27 out of the 87 pounds was sweet potatoes. But then the others, that's all, it's a little bit of lettuce, but mostly it's things like collard greens and turnip greens and kale and spinach and chard. One thing that I do is save seeds. Some things are easier to save than others. Okra seed is a relatively easy thing for me to save. And so I have an abundance of okra seeds. And so I'm working on packing those up into individual seed packets to put into those grocery deliveries. And okra is something that you can grow in almost any soil. And it's a very hardy, relatively easy thing to grow. And it does produce quite a lot.
2: Now, you've partnered with Concrete Jungle in order to provide food to those in need. Would you tell us how the partnership came about?
6: So Concrete Jungle helped out with the Alfie fruit tree sale last year, and Catherine taught a class about fruit tree care that I went to at the the fruit tree sale last spring, and I guess that's how I first met Catherine and talked to her a little bit about what I was doing and about the fruit trees that we have at the Smith Farm. And then from there, I, you know, got on their email list and seemed like a good place to partner with for our purposes.
2: Catherine, I remember when you visited us, when you were on City Lights the first time, and it was just Fascinating. It was wonderful to hear all that you were doing with urban gardening and, and educating us about how much food there is surrounding us. Concrete Jungle regularly works with food pantries to provide fresh produce to those in our area who experience food insecurity. Before the pandemic, what did your day-to-day operations look like?
5: Our main focus and our bread and butter and the reason we started is because there are so many fruit trees all over the city that are producing fruit and it's falling on the ground and going to waste. And I think right now people are probably starting to see that the mulberries are dropping and the sidewalks are starting to turn purple. Our work is entirely seasonal, so it kind of just depends on the time of year. But starting now, and or starting in May and going through November, we're picking fruit all over the city, but we're also going out to farms outside of the city and gleaning from what they have at the end of the season or if they have excess. And pretty much entirely year-round, we're growing vegetables on our farm in southwest Atlanta. So no two days look the same, but it is all focused on getting as much fresh, nutritious food as possible into our soup kitchen and food pantry partners.
2: Can you talk about what the impact of the pandemic has been on those in need?
5: I can speak most directly about what our experience has been working with soup kitchens and food pantries. And when this whole thing started, and still now, food pantries are really struggling to get enough food because they usually rely on excess from retailers. And right now, retailers just don't have excess, so there's less at the food pantries to provide to the community, but the reality of being food insecure is that you're two to three times more likely to have chronic disease like high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, things that put you at a much, much higher risk if you contract COVID. For us, the right thing to do was to eliminate the need for as many of these high-risk clients Uh, going to food pantries as possible. So we kind of did this dramatic flip. And instead of just being sort of the producer that brings the food to the food pantries, we're now producing food, aggregating food from amazing partners like the Atlanta History Center. And we're actually distributing it out into the community. So we've teamed up with Repair the World to create a grocery delivery service that distributes groceries to our food pantry clients that are quarantined or at higher risk if they contract COVID. And each week we're delivering more and more groceries into the community. Right now we're delivering to 240 families this week and we get more calls every day.
2: Oh, I think that is absolutely great. What sort of comments are you getting from those who are providing the food and those receiving it?
5: Honestly, Lois, like the... Outpouring of requests for food, but then the incredible gratitude from the folks that have received food has been so overwhelming. You know, we get letters in the mail, I get texts from numbers I don't know of people just saying, you know, thank you. This is a really scary time because of XYZ condition I have, and to be able to be safe and know reliably I'm going to get groceries every week, you know, makes me feel like this time is less scary, less crazy. You know, also we have engaged 350 volunteers to do this. This is by no means an operation powered by me. There is an incredible community behind this. It's very easy to feel kind of powerless in this time. And so I think folks are excited to feel like they can do something to help contribute and make this moment a little bit less hard for people in need.
2: Oh, yeah. Are you teaming up with other unexpected sources of food similar to the Atlanta History Center?
5: Yes, we've been so lucky to have the community show up in all sorts of ways and random people sending Instagram messages saying that they want to sell their artwork and donate the proceeds to us. And then Farms like the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, Good Samaritan, Day Spring, which is a farm out in Athens, have all provided food for us. And we're continuing to kind of explore because there's also, you know, a big issue with farm waste on larger scale farms outside of the city. And we're in a good position to kind of work with farms to glean or either, you know, use existing relationships to hopefully reclaim some of that larger amounts of uh, farm produce that's going to waste for one reason or another right now.
2: Is your organization still foraging for food now?
5: So we still have our farm days, but mulberries really just started dropping this week. So we will pick mulberries. We're exploring whether we should give folks the tools to do it on their own, or if we can do socially distant picks. Farming is easy to do socially distant because there's space and, you know, you can go and Oh, this row over here while you're weeding over on this other row. But with one fruit tree, everybody kind of has to be in the same space to pick it. So we will continue to forage because, you know, we hate to see the food go to waste. We're just not exactly sure what that's going to look like as of yet, but we got to figure it out soon because it is mulberry season.
2: You mentioned efforts such as artists selling work and donating in turn the money to you the history center and concrete jungle are both nonprofit organizations which means limited staff and resources what can people do to help you provide food to those in need what what can those of us listening do to help out
6: We are really lucky at the Atlanta History Center to be a membership organization, and our members are very generous. Of course, you know, we will always take more members, so become a member of the Atlanta History Center. All of these things, all of these ways that the community is coming together is something that the Atlanta History Center is interested in hearing more about, because this is a moment in history. So we have our Corona Collective, which is an invitation for anyone to submit Examples of ways in which our community is responding in this moment for a future exhibit about what happened in Atlanta during COVID 19. So you can go to our website to learn more about that and to submit digitally.
5: For Concrete Jungle, there's lots of ways to get involved. You can volunteer, you can sponsor a family, you can donate directly, you can come up with any sort of idea how you want to sponsor. There's a woman that is running for 24 hours, and she's going to have people sponsor every hour she runs, and then she's donating money to us. So I think this is an amazing time where people are being so creative and putting the things that they're passionate about or good at to, you know, extra good use by supporting local nonprofits. All that to say, any wackadoo idea is welcome, but we have information about getting involved, volunteering, sponsoring, or financially supporting at Concrete hyphenjungle.org forward slash COVID-19 response.
2: Concrete Jungles Executive Director Catherine Kennedy and Director of Urban Agriculture at the Atlanta History Center, Emily Roberts, talking about what their organizations are doing to provide food to those experiencing food insecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast. Please check it out wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Thank you.